Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Andy and Red. Let's take down the house lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Total Rip Fitness. Invest in yourself with one of our personal trainers at Total Rip Fitness. Welcome, everyone, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we're filmmakers, uh, writers. I've been a full-time writer-director for a little over 10 years now. Actually, a little over 11 years now. Uh, just passed my anniversary a month ago. And going. Todd's a musician. If you've not seen his uh, fun stuff, I feel I don't know what the intention is behind it, but it just, to me, looks like you have a channel called The Interloper where you just create for the sake of creating. I don't know if that's intended as a, a jump off point for your actual uh, songs and bigger stuff, or you do a lot of music and sometimes like once every 75 episodes, you, you grace us with some musical knowledge that applies to the film itself. But hopefully you got some stuff today because today's sound score is one of my favorite scores of all time. But yeah, The Interloper, uh, you, you play with synths and what, what inspired that? What, is, what are you doing there? Yeah, I just, it, when I started getting into synthesis, I, you know, do like 95% of anybody who's like learning something new and I go to YouTube and I found all these channels where that's all they do is they play with synthesizers and they, they talk about VCOs and LFOs and, you know, what does that mean, right? And then I, I got a couple myself and started playing with them. I thought, oh, this is cool. And then I started wondering, well, why does this happen? Why does the sound happen? And and why do I like it? And, and anyway, I just started making stuff. And while I was making stuff on my on there, I just thought, you know what, I'm going to put this online just as a piece of music. And then uh, just because I, I like liked it. And then some of the channels that I follow, some of them talk and others just have music. Hmm. And so I started with just, you know, putting some music out and little track or something that I made. And now I, I like, I don't know, I'm kind of graduating into this a little different bit of a of of a channel where I'm starting to talk a little bit more and I think I like it more because well I don't know it's just like a platform where you can say what you feel about something rather than just doing it or showing it right and it every now I, I want to do more content you know because it makes me have to create because you know I'm a big I'm a big believer that you can't just make when you feel like making. You have to kind of force yourself at times and it feels a little fake maybe mm. at first, but, but that's okay because sometimes what there's something in there, but there's a lot of a layer of garbage of life that's on top of it. And when you, it's just like working out, like when you force yourself to go after you're there, when you start getting into it, you're like, okay, it feels better. I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad I did that. But if you only went to the gym because you felt like it, you might never go. And then after, you know, three, four months, all, you're starting to see a change. You, then that motivates you more to go. And then it's the same thing here. I want to put out a lot of content. I, I just haven't put out a ton. But when I can, I've, I've really kind of enjoyed it. And I want to do more platforms. I want to do, you know, like more on Instagram, TikTok and all that mm. stuff. Just because that's the future. But it's... uh. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been fun. Nice. You know, it's just a little channel, nothing big, but yeah. I mean, starting points are always interesting because what gets you going 
may not necessarily be obvious of where you're going to end up. Like for me, I started my, my first experience as a storyteller started on a school bus. Um, whenever I was in elementary, I used to live in a small, small town, um, Somerville, uh, Texas, which is maybe like 1200 people in the city limits. And I grew up in the country. So I grew up outside of a small town. <laughs> like I didn't even get the bustling, uh, metropolis activity of, you know, my, my little tiny town in the mornings, I would ride the school bus, uh, you know, for an hour, hour and a half or whatever. And I was one of the first on the bus. Um, my route was usually, you know, early depending on, I guess, which year, but I had a buddy. So I grew up and it's fascinating how two different lifestyles can, can kind of make a chemistry to create something else. Uh, because I grew up, yeah, I grew up really, uh, not, you know, financially well off. Uh, but the one thing I did have, or the two things I did have was a VCR and parents with a very lax set of standards on raising children. <laughs> and so I watched a lot of crazy movies. I think also because I was the youngest uh, in my family, I had three older siblings and the oldest of which, you know, they were five years older than me. And so growing up, uh, no one, it wasn't very often I got to pick the movie, right? No one's like, if the entire family wants to sit and watch something, Care Bears is probably not going to be higher on their uh, list of suffering. And so it's going to be, I have to rise to their standards, whatever it is that they're watching. I have to kind of lift and elevate my, uh, whatever intellectual prowess, if you'll call it that. Uh, and so the stuff that I watched was usually a, a, a lot more you know, challenging and a lot of dramas and comedies, a lot of Steve Martin, as uh, was alluded to last week. And yet I got on the school bus and a buddy that I, I would sit next to, uh, Bradley, he, I, I went to stay the night at his house one time and he was like, Hey, you want to watch a movie? And I was like, yeah, what do we got? Um, Cause I'm used to at this stage of, you know, I'm, I'm watching alien and aliens and uh, B horror movies and, B horror movies you've never heard of. Uh, and it were, it was just the joy of my life. And his dad was not an oil worker as mine is. His dad was a preacher. <laughs> and so he was like, yeah, let's watch a movie. Uh, and his dad's like, oh, y'all want to watch something? Okay, well, how about this? It's the not so great escape. And it's like this Christian uh, story of this kid who wanted to sneak out and go to the movies. Literally, this is what the story was. He wanted to go watch a, a scary movie that his parents didn't wouldn't didn't want him to go watch, and he does it anyway. And it gives him nightmares, and he learns a lesson like to not oh do my that, God. Or whatever that is. And so, and so I would ride the bus with Bradley, and Bradley would hear me talk about whatever Goonies or some other movies. Like, oh, oh, what? Tell me, what's it like? What's it about? And so I would recap like. A movie and then at one point i was just out of movies to tell him about and i don't remember whose idea it was if it was his and he was like well just make something up <laughs> or if it was mine um, but i just started making up stories uh to keep us entertained on the on the bus ride to school and i would usually do like a story in the morning like it would just be the story and then and then finish it on the way back home uh, in the afternoon. Uh, then at one point I was like, you know what? I'm going to come up with a story that's going to take months. <laughs> and so I did. I came up with this silly, you know, uh, story. 
with whatever not with magic and ghosts and all all kinds of stuff in a magic mountain um very much uh borrowing from a bunch of uh story ideas that i'd you know seen and read and so and i just remember uh i just you know as an adult thinking back i didn't know you know that that was growing but that triggered a bunch of writing for me i started writing more and writing my ideas down and um i was already into like poetry and lyrics and that kind of thing um so it was very short jump into just telling stories on paper um and so i would do that but it's it was really interesting just to think back and and remember how cool it was that this kid would get on the bus and that was all he wanted. He just wanted me to tell a story. That was it. He was just like, okay, and here's where we left off yesterday. This was happening and blah, 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 blah. Uh, so yeah, 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 go. <laughs> was, you know, we're in elementary. Like we're just yeah. uh, two kids on a, on a bus telling stories. And I think that was my first audience member of like, yeah, because again, I'm the youngest in my family. No one listened to me at home. <laughs> like I, I was uh, seen and not heard kind of thing. Um, and I just wasn't, I mean, I, I guess I could be pretty brash at home, but not at school. Um, yeah, but it was just really cool to have someone who was actually interested in whatever your imagination could, could, you know, conjure up. Yeah. And so that had to feel know, good, dude, just the coolest. I don't know that I realized it at the time, at the time it was just something really fun that I was doing with a buddy. Yeah. Yeah, I, it didn't dawn on me at all until as an adult, I'm looking back and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> like, <laughs> change, isn't that crazy how something like that can change the course of your of your entire life? Because it introduces you to something that you didn't know, you know, kind of that you could love, right? Yeah, yeah. Or, like when you're six, seven, eight, like how would you, how could you know that like I love telling stories or making up stories? Like, you know, you, you've been like ingesting right? Your, your whole life, right? So to then regurgitate that, that probably felt really good even, but you don't know, you know, like, oh, I'm going to do this the rest of my life. Like, why would you think that? Oh yeah. It's zero. Like I, I've, I've mentioned at least once uh, before that at no point in my childhood that I think I would be telling stories. I, I just assumed I would be manual labor somewhere um, mm. because that was what everyone around me doing was, was doing. Like they were either enlisting into the military of some branch uh, my family was mostly army or they were working on farms or whatever that manual labor stuff tie plan. There was a railroad plant that was in my hometown um, that I guess some people worked at. It was one of those things where I had to wait for the train every damn day. But uh, other than that, I don't know where all these railroad ties were being made. And to be completely honest, I don't even know what a railroad tie is. <laughs> like it's just <laughs> it's it's a word that I heard a lot growing up. Oh. Um, but yeah, I mean, to your point, you just you don't know the the thing that's going to trigger something deep and profound in you at any point in your life. Like, yeah, I didn't get started until I was in my thirties, you know. And even as a twenty something, you think. Oh man, that thing that I thought I wanted, I wish I had learned guitar whenever I was 10. I'd be so good now. Or I wish I had started weightlifting when I was 15 and you know, I'm, I'm 50 now. Like there's, I I've seen people start lifting weights in their fifties who go on to win bodybuilding uh, comp competitions. Like there's really nothing stopping wherever you are from whatever you want to be doing um, in life. Yeah. That's my that's my story and I'm sticking to it. That's awesome, man. What a great story. What a great story. You just got to like, just as life comes at you, just embrace it or not. But, but you've got to go 
all in if you yeah. want to get good. Like those people who start lifting when they're 50, I mean, they're they're all in diet, sleep. Yeah, all of that, all that kind of stuff. It's not like they dabbled. You know, right. they didn't win competitions by dabbling. <laughs> right. You know, nobody ever does. None. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's awesome, man. Thanks, man. Cool. Well, today uh, we are covering The Fountain, Darren Aronofsky's The Fountain. So if you haven't seen that film, please pause this episode. Go watch it. Uh, it's it is streaming. I think it costs like three bucks or four bucks or something. Uh, but it's streaming all on like uh, Amazon and YouTube and stuff like that. But but yeah, go pause this episode and watch it because we're going to spoil a bunch of stuff. Heck yeah. We'll look at a handful of things. I don't have much. Um, and I think the reasons for that will be revealed in time. Um, but I do want to look at a little bit of the cinematography and editing. Um, we'll discuss some of the visual effects as well as setbacks that they had that Aronofsky had. And it seems to be the story of his career of uh, setbacks um, and, and doubling down and, and coming back to it. Uh, and I want to just look at that and maybe just talk about it a little bit um, and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the film. A modern day scientist is struggling with mortality and desperately searching for the medical breakthrough that will save his cancer stricken wife. Directed by Darren Aronofsky. Screenplay by Darren Aronofsky. Cinematography by Matthew Libatique. Uh, featuring Hugh Jackman as Th Thomas. Rachel Weiss as Isabel. Ellen Burstyn as Dr. Lillian Guzzetti. Cliff Curtis as Captain Ariel, and Sean Patrick Thomas as Antonio. There you are. Hey, what are you doing here? Babe, we have a little bit of three. This is an actual lion book. Look, it explains the creation. You see, that's first father. He's the very first human. Ooh, is he dead? He sacrificed himself to make the world. That's the tree of life bursting out of his stomach. Hey, come. Listen. His body became the tree's roots. They spread and formed the earth. His soul became the branches rising up, forming the sky. All that remained was first father's head. His children hung it in the heavens, creating Shibalba. Shibalba? The star? The nebula? So what do you think? About? That idea. Death as an act of creation. Pull out the car and meet you in front. All right, Todd. This is a a story that is really interesting because, on the one hand, it's pretty thin on plot. But with that, does that pull you out at all? Is this something that you can sit and really enjoy? How do you feel about the fountain? So I, I've seen this movie only one other time, and I hmm. want to say it was like twelve years ago or so, something like that. And when I saw it, I remember there were, I mean, I was much like younger and not really like, I couldn't see things for what they were really. And, and I remember it feeling slow at parts, right? But now I'm watching, when I watched it again, I, I mean, it's in my, it's in my top 20. There Ooh. is maybe higher, maybe top 10. It is the most beautiful adaptation of of uh drive pain loss grief and acceptance and that i've ever that i've ever seen on a screen it is it's hard to put into words to be honest like i'm, I'm watching it 
and I'm thinking, okay, what am I seeing now? What am I seeing now? What am I seeing now? And at some point, my brain just shuts off. And I just, I just start accepting the visuals for what they are in that moment, right? I stop trying to think about, well, what does this mean for what's going to happen next? Or what does this mean for what I've already seen? I just start taking it in. Uh, The pacing is, is unbelievably like patient and and point but pointed everything happens for a reason every word every visual every the the camera position this this film is a perfect example of the difference between pre and post pandemic this film could not be made right now hmm. i'm not saying it couldn't be made in 10 years or, or 5 years or whatever but right now this film can't be made it can't be made because nobody has the intention span for it and because nobody knows how to shoot like this right now. They just don't. Everybody's making making films for Netflix and for HBO even and 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 all of these streaming services, and they're not making it for the screen. And there is a difference. A massive difference. Go watch any new movie, new film made by Netflix, 99% of them. And you will see a massive difference between that and this. And I really think that part of it, and I don't know what it all is. I'm not, I'm not the expert, but I will say that part of it is framing. Hmm. The framing in this movie is absolutely textbook perfect. Every single angle and, and close up, extreme close up, even the wides, which there, there aren't a ton of wides. I mean, there are wides, but for the most part, it's we're very right here, and it, which I think helps because, like you said at the beginning, it's it's thin on plot. But being thin on plot doesn't mean it's a thin it's a thin themed movie, right? And a lot of that comes from from the story of the characters and the acting themselves. You know, if you want to if you want to tell a a a feeling, you have a close up. If you want to tell a story, you have a wider thing, right? And we're telling feelings. Like he's telling feelings. He's not telling like this massive story. He's just telling feelings and we're trying to convey feelings. So we have to get all these super close-ups. I have never, I mean, I, I want to say maybe, uh, maybe my top crying scene ever on screen is, is Hugh Jackman sitting on that bed after his wife passes away. Hmm. I have never, I, out of all the crying scenes I've ever seen, I, I, I love Hugh Jackman. Let me just say that. I keep diverting what I'm trying to say. I love Hugh Jackman. I've always loved Hugh Jackman. I think as a human being, he's fantastic. I I, uh, I follow him on Twitter. I love what uh, he posts. I love all of his films. All of his films are so good because it's him. And it's not just because he's a great actor. Like I relate to him as a person too. And I see... Even even when he's playing a character, I always see him, but I think it's a good thing. It's not like most actors where they just disappear or some actors where they just disappear and you don't see them anymore. And that's that's a brilliant thing. You know, uh, what's his name? He played Joker. Like Joaquin Phoenix. Phoenix. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, Joaquin Phoenix. But anybody who's played Joker, oh, really. Heath Ledger. Yeah, yeah. Heath Ledger. Yeah. You, you just disappear. And that's brilliant. It's amazing. But for some reason, Hugh Jackman, I always see Hugh Jackman and I love it because I love him. And he is so 
his two my two favorite movies of his are this and prisoner like uh, prisoners he just has this way he gets angry perfectly like he does anger on screen so well <laughs> but i'd never seen him cry like that hmm. and it was just incredible so anyway i thought the cinematography was absolutely flawless and perfect the writing was patient and insightful and made you question things and uh, also made you just let go at times rachel weiss is you know we've talked about her from the mummy when we did cover the mummy so if you haven't if you haven't listened to that episode please go listen to it because i i think she's she's such a strong actress and she just kills it yeah. in in this yeah. as well yeah um i mean it's every but but not just her being good at it but capturing that on screen is the other part of it right you can have a great actor doing a great job but if you don't capture it the right way then it doesn't convey what they're trying to convey and so doing these close-ups when when they do doing these medium wides when they do to reveal something but then punching right back in to get a reaction it's just it was absolutely flawless storytelling when you're trying to tell the story of an emotion and that's all this was and i felt every second of it and it was just and the and the music was absolutely uh, i mean other than interstellar i can't yeah. think of any other moment that i've ever felt like if this if a single note was different it would change everything this is absolutely flawless use of sound of music and the absence of it like I thought that that the way that they crafted the silence around the music was almost as important, which is a director thing. That's that's not just the 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 person who scored it. It's the director saying, "Okay, well, I want I want silence here with him walking down the street. I want to hear his footsteps and his breathing, but I don't want to hear anything else." Right? The 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 city is not there. The city is gone, and now all of a sudden, boom! The city is there. You know, things like that, like in, in, in many movies that might feel out of place or might feel kind of, kind of contrite. Right. But in this, in this film, it was almost like he had the, he created a, an environment where he could do anything he wanted and relate it to, and and have a reason for doing it after he decided to do it, which is, is kind of hard to do in a film. Like, a lot of times you you think, okay, it's this kind of movie. So in this kind of movie, maybe, you know, we wouldn't be able to do that where we cut out the, the city or something. Um, we're just hearing him walk. But here, because we're doing things like we're cutting to this big ball flying through the universe to the nebula and, and there's that. But then also we're, you know, going quote unquote back in time or to an, uh, another life, if you wanted to call it, or, or just in the story of this conquistador, right? We have that story going on, but then we also have the story of, of the, the quote unquote real story of him, him searching for the, the cure for his wife. We're all over the place so we can do whatever we want. So how cool is that to be sitting down writing a script where I can literally do whatever I want, just let my brain vomit on the page. And if I, and then and then you tie things together. Then you say, oh, we can do this because his head, he's, he's not thinking about anything around him, you know, so, so he just hears his breathing. Or it, it must have been a f very freeing thing to work on. And I'm sure that you probably have some insight into that or whatever, but 
I'll stop talking. It's a, an incredible film. The acting is brilliant. The cinematography is some of the best I've ever seen. The directing is fantastic. Darren Aron- Aronofsky might be one of my favorite directors. Is one of my favorite directors. Uh, just yeah, amazing. Yeah, he's one of a handful of directors that I just know they put something out. I'm gonna go watch it. This, there's just no question, you know. And I probably have I don't know a dozen of those where it just doesn't matter what. I don't even need the preview, um, but I was aware of this one. I once I saw the previews for the imagery, I was like, "Oh my god, he's he's doing something here." And it's funny because I was really excited to see it in theater, and I didn't because I had a buddy, uh, a roommate at the time, who went and saw it, and he was like, "Oh, I don't see that. It was it was trash." Uh, I was like, "Oh, oh man," oh. and I should have known better because he and I don't have the same taste at all. <laughs> like, uh, I, I don't know what I was thinking, but I finally, you know, sat down to watch it. And I was kind of like a, a, a kid who snuck in candy to the theater. He was just like, so pleased with himself. Like, Oh my God, I can't believe this. <laughs> um, and I, I do love it. I can understand why it's a turnoff of a film because you know, it, there's, there's certain, um, there's a lot of it, it, teeters and borders on being just a meditative film um it doesn't quite go all the way there because there is story there is uh some pretty you know heavy themes and it all ties together it's just not super over the top obvious of how it all ties together um and it's his willingness to kind of bury some of those strings um or at least lightly powder them with snow that makes it you know so much more satisfying um, as a, as a viewer and as an experience, uh, because it is one of those things where I, you said it pretty well, like every word is intentional, like, okay, we don't, we don't need to reiterate, you know, a thousand times about the, the idea of creation or uh, death as an act of creation, right? That's what the soundbite, you know, in, in the museum that she says, um, what do you think about that? About what the idea, uh, death as an act of creation. And he was not ready <laughs> to hear that <laughs> and it's so cool because this whole story is told both through his eyes and her eyes um it starts through her eyes if once you understand and have a full picture of of the story you realize we're beginning at the end of her book like the beginning of the story is the story of the conquistador right and the conquistador and the the, the traveler um in the spaceship uh, and I love that he calls that a spaceship. Uh, I mean, it's it's this weird snow globe with a tree and, and a human. And yet that's a spaceship. This is a Voyager. Uh, I love that. It's so much better than some fancy metallic thing with Uber jet thrusters or whatever. Like, no, it's more of an ecosystem of love and heart and, and uh, uh, patience, endurance. It's all these beautiful things uh, wrapped up in this bubble. And he's trying to just keep this bubble together long enough to get to uh, the star to, to heal everything, to, to give him and her both life forever so that they can be together forever. Um, and her story is all about helping him. It's really, it's, it's her and the stuff that she's fascinated with. She is fascinated with uh, Shababa and Mayan culture. And, and yet we're also layering in Christianity, right? The, it opens with a book uh, with a verse from Genesis, Right. Therefore, the Lord God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden and placed a flaming sword to protect the tree of life. And it's that same flaming sword that the Mayan uh, uh, warrior holds 
to protect the tree of life. Um, and so they're, they're fusing Christianity and Mayan, uh, you know, mythology together. And it's so cool. I, I would love to see so much more of this uh, fusing of uh, mythologies. And so seeing that she's writing this story to represent him and it's ultimately to, and he has to be the one to write the, uh, the final chapter and how the story resolves. It, it can only resolve one way. And it's not until he's willing to let it resolve that way that he can move on because they're, they're tied together, his ability to admit it and also plant the seed. And so the conquistador is obviously, uh, the representation of him as a scientist and his obsession, um, with saving her. And then of course the, uh, the traveler is his grief and as a husband trying to, uh, cope with her sickness and, and dying. It's just wonderful. Uh, you know, and it, it, I think it's less satisfying to talk about than it is to just ruminate on. And I think that's why this movie works for me the way it does. It's because it's not about perfectly, you know, epitomizing where the story works and where it doesn't, uh, because it is the cyclical thing, because once we get to the end, it's almost the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. He's, he's planting the seed of the tree that becomes the spaceship, uh, that becomes the thing that dies, um, that grows like it's this beautiful, you know, circle, which is also represented in the ring, right. Uh, his marriage. Um, and yeah, so it's just a layer on layer of thematic symbolism that kind of propels the story into this, uh, uh, tidy, beautiful little circle. Um, and what about like really brilliant things like adding little hairs to the tree in the, in the spaceship? That it's a brilliant thing to put in there as, oh, that's interesting. Trees don't normally have that and they don't react to you, you know, coming close to touch them. But then also it's necessary because how else do you show that a tree dies? Hmm. True. Visually, you need to show that that tree dies. So how else do you do that except, you know, some some way like that? That's a brilliant little <laughs> thing. Absolutely brilliant that that sets you up for later to then be able to visually see that. And I can imagine him writing this and then thinking as he gets to the part where the tree dies, Oh, how do I visually show that? And then going back to the beginning and, and working in the, the little hairs throughout the film, we're going to see this about four times or whatever. So that by the time, you know, when the tree dies, we can see it actually like shrivel up. Okay. You know, that's absolutely brilliant. You have to think from the visual standpoint of how do I convey this visually rather than uh, for something like that, that never moves. It's static. It's there. You know, it's not like I can do a close up on a face and have a reaction. No, it's it's a tree. So that's a great point because it needs to be a specific point. Normally, right. A tree dies. It takes months, yeah. maybe a year to figure out, oh, this thing's gone. Yeah. Um, and you need something quick visual feedback. That's a really great point. I hadn't even thought about that. Uh, and just the, the use of the tree in that, in the spaceship as, you know, a, a source of life for him and the way he, he takes the bark and eats it. It's almost a sacrament, right? Um, that mm. he's, he's taking, it's a, it's, it's an act of worship as much as, as it is a, an act of uh, sustenance. And there's so much visualizing he had to do to make this story work uh because you also have to you know recognize that these are three wildly different set settings you know what's happening in that biosphere is very different from what's happening 
you know, in the present day, which is very different from the story of the conquistador, like, and in order to make those all intercut, because he, he intercuts them, you know, a lot throughout the entire movie and to make sure this scene is going to cut perfectly um, in tone and pacing um, and, and the, the right amount of close up. It's so much planning and pre-visualizing um, like the, the tree bark and hair um, is got to look and feel so much like the shot of her neckline in the bed. Uh, now, I don't think they intercut those on top of each other, uh, but they do need to feel like when the viewer sees it, he's like, oh, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is what this is. But as opposed to the close up, whenever he starts tattooing his finger, he's grieving right on the bed um, and he starts tattooing his finger with the, the pin that she gave him, the fountain pen, I guess. We intercut that immediately, like that close up of him turning his hand over intercuts with him on the spaceship. Those are two completely different days that are probably like four weeks apart uh, of filming. Um, but they need to feel like it's all fluid. This is all a, a fluid experience for the viewer. And you have to do it with that intention and understand, okay, here's how this is going to cut in the editing room. Um, because, you know, we can't just run back to the parking lot and grab that shot again. It's like, we're mm -hmm. going to tear this whole set down. <laughs> it needs to be flawless. Uh, yeah, there's just so much planning. And all those plans can go awry. They, oh, they went down to Australia to start pre-production on this thing. And they were building miniatures, that, that whole tree, the biosphere and the conquistador thing. All that are these big miniatures that they were building. And they get, I don't know how deep into pre-production when Brad Pitt pulls out of the project. It was originally supposed to be Brad Pitt and Kate what? Blanchett. Yeah. And Kate Blanchett? Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know why, but for whatever reason, Brad Pitt does something else and he, uh, uh, they, the studio, you know, puts a pin in it until he finds the right actor. But then to add, uh, insult to injury, it, the budget gets chopped from 75 to 25 million. Oh, <laughs> literally two thirds of your budget just vanishes overnight, basically. And so, I, I heard a little bit of an interview from, uh, it's, it's interesting. I don't know if it's online somewhere, but it's in the extras. I watched a few minutes of Rachel Weiss interviewing Hugh Jackman while he's in the makeup chair um, on set, getting like the, the tattoos. Oh, put, put that in. in yeah. the, in <laughs> I'll the see if I can find notes. it. And it's so cool uh, because she's asking how he came to the project. And apparently... Aronofsky went to see Hugh Jackman in a, a show like a musical on, uh -huh. on Broadway and Aronofsky loved it. And at the time, Hugh Jackman was like, I had no idea this guy liked musicals or stage or at all. Um, and now it's probably a little bit more obvious because he's gone on to make like the whale, which is a stage play adapted for film. Um, but he did. And Hugh Jackman was just kind of stirring the pot a little bit. He's like, oh, you working on anything? He's like, oh yeah, I mean, had the script, you know, uh, and he's like, Oh, can I see it? Ah, no, nah, you don't want to see this. Uh, no. Nah. And, and Hugh Jackman was like, Oh, oh, I guess I stepped over the line. Like fine. And Aronofsky reached out the next day. He's like, Hey, did, did you really want to read this thing? Um, and he's like, yeah. And so he sat like one night after one of his shows, he said that, that like he started reading it at 11 PM and read all the way through like 1 AM and just was excited about it and, and adored it. And I guess Aronofsky, 
offered it to him over the phone. He's like, yeah, I mean, if you want it, I, it's yours. And so they went to work and it's just crazy. Like, can you imagine? I don't know if it would have been better or worse as a movie. Like I, I, not because of who was playing the part. I think Brad Pitt would have done an amazing job as, as Kate Blanchett as well. Like, Kay Blanchett would have been coming right off Lord of the Rings. And so uh, she would have been, you know, talk of the town for sure. But just thinking about the budget cut is what messes me up to go from 75, two thirds of your budget just disappears. And I'm like, does he make adjustments in the story? Does, does that mean I don't feel like it is. I, I can't imagine what he felt he would have cut out of this. Uh, it feels complete. I can imagine ways to flesh it out for sure, but I don't know that it would have made it a better movie. There's things that uh, I might have done differently, but 2006, slightly different media landscape. I probably wouldn't have done uh, Wife Dying of Cancer. I think if I watch one more movie or TV show where someone dies of cancer, I might get a big bowl of cancer and just eat it. Like <laughs> I'm so tired of watching people die of cancer on screen. Um, it's, it's exhausting. I, I think we've all experienced enough loss from cancer uh, to, to be good with it. I literally, you know, buried a, a, a very old friend, you know, a couple months ago. And it's just like, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I could, but in 2006, probably not as saturated. And so it, that is probably the only thing about this film for me that doesn't hold up as opposed to mm. the visual effects. My God. And I think this might've been one of the ways he saved a ton of money because the studio didn't think he could make those kind of visual effects on a budget. And he did. He, he spent like 140 grand on the, uh, all the most beautiful stuff in this film was like 140 grand. It's these two artists who were working with chemical reactions and they had this big water tank or tank of some kind. Um, and they had, you know, these microscopic lenses so that they could magnify stuff 500 times um, and just get really crazy reactions. And, and so most of the visual effects was probably just compositing. I mean, there's a few CG effects like him uh, at the very, very end, whenever he kind of, fades uh into the 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 star mm -hmm. i that's a that's a cg you know element blended and composited into all those chemical reactions but this is one of the most beautiful films of all time even if you hate the story it doesn't matter you could if you could find a way to mute the dialogue and just play the music and watch the visuals uh and smoke a bowl like this is probably one of the best <laughs> nights of your life <laughs> yeah agreed man <laughs> oh my god but just the the, the innovative approach we mm -hmm. don't have i i think it even goes back to your point about this you couldn't make this movie now people are too fascinated with you know nuke and uh, uh and and unreal engine and those are like incredible tools but nothing beats reality like if you can do something practically you might be able to save money. Uh, this should have cost $50 million more than it did. And somehow he made it work. Uh, that's just amazing. But yeah, I'm, I'm blown away by his resourcefulness and, and vision and God, I have no idea where I'm going with that, but yeah. yeah. No, no, it's, it's, it's uh, another Testament to just finding a way to get it done. Right. Yeah. The way this story was important to him. And uh, he had the vision. This is a this is a perfect example. If you ever wanted an example for the importance of a director, 
the one person who has the vision. This is it. I can't think of any other film that is so tied to a has to be so tied to a single person's vision or else it falls flat than this because like we said before every word every shot every angle every you know facial expression had to be right on or else the entire thing falls flat i feel like like if there's one moment where we don't believe that rachel is dying or that rachel weiss's character is dying or that we don't believe that that uh the struggle of thomas to find a cure if if we if there's one moment where we're taken out of it because of a performance or because of a of an angle of the of the camera on a reaction then it i th- i think the entire movie falls flat honestly mm. then it then all of a sudden it feels fake because uh because it 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 just has to have that permeated throughout and i feel like it absolutely does and think i mean from an actor perspective Rachel Weiss and Hugh Jackman so, uh, for me some of the, the most amazing transformation performances uh, that I've seen on a screen uh, in this film I I just I, I'm struggling to find another one that is up to par because and I think man it's so I'm so glad that that um that Brad Pitt backed out mm. I'm I, he's a fan he's an amazing yeah. actor and yeah. he would have crushed this yes I, I mean I am not taking anything away from him, but I think something about being a stage actor prepared Hugh mm. Jackman for doing this because you have to do multiple. You have to be a conquistador. You have to be a scientist and you have to be whatever the bald guy is in the, in the, in the globe, right? <laughs> yeah. Flying through the universe. But they are very, very different characters, even though they're the same character. Right. And I think that that's one of the things that stage actors do really well. You embrace yourself as, as, the vessel but then you you are able to pull in you know whatever this aspects of this character need to come out right but you are the vessel like you're on a stage it's different than on a screen on a stage and i I know you know this you you are your your body is there on stage and you have to you have to know that and be aware of it you have to be aware of yourself but then you also have to pull in you know, something from other characters. And a lot of times, especially if you're on stage, you're playing multiple characters or even the same character in different situations that is going to require a different approach. And I think that because he is a stage actor, he did that so well. Like he just, you know, it, like I, I saw Thomas in the, in the conquistador. Mm. Right. And I saw the conquistador in Thomas, uh, but they were completely different approaches, completely different different um uh characters it it is just a so brilliant um it's it's a brilliant role for him um and it's a it's a brilliant way to bring out something of the stage on a screen it's just fantastic their their performances were just amazing yeah Yeah. and it's funny because your your favorite emotional breakout was him sitting on the bed and for me it's him at the tree like you know Mm. 50 seconds later and whenever he just starts pounding on the tree and screaming at it um it's just breaks me and then immediately like uh, izzy shows up and now he's yelling at her to you know stop and he he breaks me right there man it's just yeah this is very like uh i don't know not quite primitive but like almost and it's emotional like engagement 
because it's so much more focused on emo- engaging your emotions than it is on and making sure you get the story. Like, did you get it? Did you, did you get it? Like, nah, it doesn't, they don't, he doesn't care. It's like, it's, did you respond to it? I think that's the the thing that he's, he's more worried about. Yeah. And the entire film, I mean, just the look of this film, incredibly dramatic lighting, right? This is, uh, it's very dark, a lot of high contrast, right? The blacks are crushed. Uh, the whites are blown out the conquistador opening is nearly pitch black. Like you're just making out silhouettes as much as anything else. The, the, the lighting throughout the film, even in the conquistador and the, him as a scientist, the present day, like a lot of the lighting is kind of reflecting or foreshadowing the, the journey that um, the, the travelers on uh, in the spaceship, because like the, the conquistador walks through the hall of the queen and there's all these lamps just floating around. Um, and it's like he's in the star system. And he's just still traveling towards her and, and for her. Uh, similar in whenever he's in the present day. Like the, the lights in the hallway create these circles like the rings. And it's playing and they're gold. Everything's gold in this movie. Gold and black. And it, the rings of light, you know, in the hallway, creating these little pools. And it's still very, very high contrast, like in no operating room would everything be so dark. <laughs> like it's just flooded with light. Uh, but that's not the tone and the, the emotional um, way to the film, right? They're trying to make sure it's represented uh, as dramatic as it is. Um, and so play into it. If that's, if this is supposed to be a dramatic, heavily emotional thing, well, let's just crank it to a 10, uh, it's not supposed to be grounded. It's not supposed to be realistic on no level. So let's remove any sense of realism. And that way, blending all these worlds together feels right. Imagine if he had, you know, shot the the present day as this very grounded, realistic thing. It's like, eh, it just doesn't click. It feels wrong. And he finds a really great way to find a middle ground of, yeah, okay, we're, we're in the city. We can see all these buildings or whatever, but we're going to make it still very, very contrasty so that even if he's walking through traffic, it still feels heightened. Um, it's just really lovely. And with that, like there's all these long dramatic holds that he then inserts a series of quick cuts. And so like the, the scene where she calls, she's taking a bath and she calls to him and he pauses and looks at her and there's this slow push on him, I think another one on her, and there's this wide shot of him standing against the, the doorway of the bathroom. And then he walks over and there's all these quick cuts of him heating up the water and heating up the sponge and testing it against her skin. And it's just bang, bang, bang. And it just really heightens the dramatic effect to have these really long holds and and you know, with these inserts of quick cuts. Just beautiful directing to create a sense of urgency and pacing. Um, yeah. I I adore it. I think, yeah. yeah. I was just going to, just to follow up on that, because I think that, man, for years I've been trying to figure out like, what is, what is the difference between, you know, like I said earlier, a, a, a pre-pandemic film and all of these films that are made for streaming. <clears throat> and I think one of the biggest ones is, is close-ups and the use of close-ups. It, it just seems to me like, you know, when you have all these, all these bigger, I guess, I don't know, streaming films, I, I always 
they always do these wide cityscape shots, right? To say, oh, now we're here or now we're there. We're going to put you in this place now. I'm going to put you in this place now. Stop that. Stop that. You know, just be here, wherever here is. It doesn't matter where here is, at least for this movie, right? Right. Maybe if it's like a a Mission Impossible film and he's going to 10 different cities, right? And we kind of need that or whatever. It has its place, I guess. But but in this film, we're we're almost never we're in just a few places. Right. But we're almost never, you know, seeing a bunch of people on the screen. It's it's always our characters and we're always about their face. We're always about their reaction to things. We're always about what is the, the thing that they're looking at? I'm going to have an extreme close up on the fountain uh, the the title of book right or i'm gonna have an extreme close-up of the pen you know uh, or extreme close-up on somebody's face as they're looking directly at the camera it, it just it's so pointed uh uh that you can't help but be there he's just forcing you he's beating it into you to be there in that moment instead of taking you out and and having all of these like I'm trying to get as much on into the frame as possible. No, I'm going to get one thing in the frame and you're going to, you're going to take it right. It's just, here you are. And, and finding unique ways of, of doing that. Like when he's sitting in in the bathroom crying while she's sleeping and he has the book there, there's this over the beautiful over the shoulder shot of him holding the book that for some reason sticks with me. And I think it's because it, you know, we're so we're so parallel to the ground for most of the film that all of a sudden there's this like over the shoulder shot that like, oh, OK, OK, this is just another way of looking at the same thing. And and I think it's just as much the cinematographer, Matthew Libatique, as it is uh, Darren. But I think it's most I really feel like a lot of it is Darren. I feel like a lot of it is, oh, let's try this. Let's try that. But. I guarantee that Matthew had a lot of for sure. The nice thing is they've been working together, I think since Pi. Oh, there you go. Okay. You know, so yeah, they, they speak the same language. And I mean, even just thinking about those first few movies all put together, like Pi to Requiem for a dream to the fountain. Like you could not come up with three more different and distinct looks. <laughs> yeah. And it's so cool because I think I've I've been frustrated with, you know, trying to get people to understand this that I'm working with, that I'm making a thing and it's going to look like this. This is mm-hmm. not how all of the things are going to look every time I make something. This is how this thing needs to look. And every film is its own universe. And there's this weird, I don't know, hurdle that some people have of getting to understand that just because something can look like inception doesn't mean it should look like inception Mm -hmm. some things need to look like pie some things need to look like the fountain um and some things need to look like requiem like these are completely just and so for aronofsky i'm sure he got that inherently um but for his collaborator to also understand that okay we are now starting a new deal what are we going to do to make this one become its own universe it needs to live mm-hmm. as its own thing. And I, I, I love that willingness to, to completely reevaluate and say, okay, uh, this has its own look and it's going to be gold and, and, and black to represent Shababa. 
and as opposed to, I don't think Nolan does this quite as well. Like he, you could put, you know, inception next to interstellar. Um, and you're like, okay, that makes sense to me. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if they would perfectly intercut, but it wouldn't be that hard, you know? No. Yeah. They same vibe. Yeah. In no universe. Could you intercut, you know, the fountain with, uh, Requiem, um, or, yeah. <laughs> or mother or the whale. Like these are completely different styles in every single one of his films. And I just adore him for that. And for recognizing art needs to be its own piece. It doesn't need to always fit as a part of a frame that fits in with other frames from other movies. Like, no, this is its story. And that's the other thing. I wish people would take more risks. Like when was the last time, you know, how often do we get the fountain? Not just as a a visual treat and sonic, you know, thing of beauty, but just its own unique world. Like 2006 was a crazy year. The more, you know, I sit back and look at it, you know, Pan's Labyrinth, Children of Men, The Fountain, like, right? In in a matter of 12 months, we got just hit over the head with unique works of art instead of uh, remakes, remixes, and um, reboots. Like, let's, let's figure out how to start recreating again. Um, And I think, that's a that's one of the reasons why films um, are are struggling to find an audience now, and hopefully we're getting back to that. I, I think I've mentioned a couple times, Marvel is starting to fade in its you know skill set, and hopefully audiences are going to be more interested in seeing small films and more interesting ideas and uh, showing up and not knowing. I, for for years, you know, if you go before 2010, let's say people showed up to a movie to see an actor, to see the star. And that allowed you to do a lot of weird, crazy things like the fountain. Um, because it's like, okay, I don't know what this movie's about. I have no idea, but I like Hugh Jackman. He was in all those X-Men movies. So let's, let's go see what Hugh Jackman's up to. And then after 2010, it was suddenly like, yeah, I don't care what Hugh Jackman's up to. What are the X-Men up to? What's Marvel up to? And now it's mm-hmm. for, you know, the last decade, it's been nothing but, Let's see the, the the this franchise, you know, whether it's Mission Impossible or uh, Harry Potter or whatever. Like it was always, let's see the franchise. Uh, hopefully now we're going to come back to some other place. Maybe it is star-based. I don't really care anymore. I just want unique stories. Um, I would love it if we got even beyond stars and franchises and we just said stories. Uh, let's follow interesting ideas. I don't know that we're going to get to that just because audiences need something to latch onto. That seems to be the way it goes. Uh, lately, it's been a lot of books. Let's, you know, adapt a new book that has a built-in audience that studios can feel comfortable giving, you know, $100 million to, to make. Hopefully, it's maybe a combination of stars and directors and writers that people are, you know, becoming more fascinated with, kind of like back way back when, back in the early, early days of like... Kubrick and the Hitchcock and you know people would show up to see their movies right oh I don't know what this is about but I know it's Kubrick I I know it's you know Hitchcock Um, I know it's Spielberg and so we need to get back to this place I think where let's see what Aronofsky is up to and create something outrageous that challenges us as a viewer Uh, yeah we're we're just as a society not comfortable being challenged uh, Mm -hmm. by our art anymore we we want art to uh, fit neatly into what we're comfortable with, um, whether that's ideology, which is mostly that, 
um, or just storytelling tropes. Uh, yeah, I, I, I want people to gravitate more towards art that challenges. Uh, like I love it, that you say that. You know. I love that you say that. I feel like there's two different kinds of, of films now. There's the, there's the kind of film that's, that's made so people can escape. Hmm. Right. And then there's a the kind of film that's made so that um, people can heal. Hmm. I think there's there. I mean, on its face, I feel like there's those two kinds and the kinds that last are the kinds that make people heal or help people heal. Not that help people escape. Like, like if you, I mean, think about all of our favorite movies, I would say that I would argue that most of them, if not all of them have an element of, of healing to them of like, okay, even if it, if it doesn't speak to me healing about this specific thing, I can see it helping other people or I can see it helping the person who made it or wrote it. Right. And that's why they made it or wrote it to heal themselves or to heal, to heal somebody around them. And, but the ones that are made so that people can escape are like, you know, now we have, well, we have like rom-coms, we have thrillers and, you know, the get the bad guy before the world explodes, you know, like those are escapist movies where you're trying to escape life. You're trying to escape your troubles. And they're important because I think that some, that a lot of times like people need that they need to just to be able to shut off. Right. And, and so those are important, but the lasting ones, ones like the fountain, you know, ones like interstellar, they, they are there to, to help answer a question, not give you the answer because there is no answer. Right. But just address the question and address the the desire to, or the, and the drive to find the answer, to find the solution, to find help. Those, those are the ones that last because there is no answer. Cause I can go back and watch the fountain right now and I'll still have so many questions, right? I can watch interstellar tomorrow for the 13,000th time <laughs> and still have questions and it will still hit me because those, there are no answers at least not yet. And I think that that's such a great, it's like con the continuation of a story. It's like, I'm going to tell you the story without an answer. So then you're going to, you're going to take it with you, right? It's not like, it's not packaged up like in a bow. And, and that is such a beautiful thing because, because it, it is addressing real life. You know, like, why do people get cancer? I don't know. I don't know who, why does so-and-so get it? And I don't, or why, you know, like what? And he finds the solution. That's the other thing in this film. Like he finds the solution, but it's just too late. That, but that, how, yeah. It, and that, and that whole element I love so much because it raises another important um, aspect of, of coping, um, which is, it, it doesn't matter that he discovered the cure, right? It came too late, which means not just that he wasn't able to save his wife, fine, but it also means that he wasted so much precious time that he had with his wife. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay. I think that's what she was trying to subtly get through to him every time she ignored the science that he was working on. She knew time is coming uh, to an end and it's precious. Um, and she would just keep, you know, I don't, she would shake it off. Like every time he was on a meeting or you had to run and she, you could see this look come over her. Like there goes more time wasted. Like I, I want time with you. Um, and he just, he never got that until obviously it was you know too late. And it's like, Oh, and the only thing and this goes back to the only raises more questions, but I don't think he ever even gets that. I don't think he ever understands that. It just, for him, the end of the, at the end of the day, he has to find a way to move on and accept 
that he was too late. And maybe it motivates him to create a cure for aging, right? Because that's where it ends. It ends with him uh, saying, you know, that's the goal to stop. Uh, to aging is a, a disease, um, and we need to we need to solve that. Um, yeah, and so I, I I love the idea that he was on a completely different journey than what she was on, and we never really got to see mm-hmm. in totality the journey that she was on. We only got to experience his journey. And the way she viewed his journey and how she was trying to help him along that journey. That's but, an interesting way to put yeah. it, a journey. Because yeah. in the bubble, they're together in that journey to the... the yeah. That's... I never thought about that. That's brilliant. Uh, so good. This is... Yeah, it's, it's it really is. It's a simple film, but I think it's very, very wonderful. Yeah. Agreed. Um, Agreed. Nice. Uh, final thoughts? Uh, one of... One of my, it's in a top list of some sort, uh, for me. Um, I love films like this that ask questions that don't give answers. I love the the thoughtfulness, the creativity, the, um, the ability to make something from less than what he expected. You know, I didn't know about the budget cut. That's crazy. The acting is amazing. Cinematography. It is a full on force to be reckoned with way to tell a story. I just adore it. And almost everything that Aaron, Aaron, Darren Aronofsky does is it's visceral. You know, when I, when I watched the whale, I came home and I made a piece of art because I just felt like I needed to, Hmm. I can't even, I fucking needed to that night. I had to, I got home late and I just, I had to do something. (laughs) I mean, when, what, films do you watch where that you leave the theater you drive home and then you have to continue to do something and even though it's late at night and i gotta wake up early for work the next day and i got you know kids and uh, like it didn't matter you know this dude just knows how to hit that button whatever it is and and i I just adored it adored it yeah yeah my only regret is he isn't making more stuff like i i wish you know, he was on this kind of cycle that Nolan is Nolan every two to three years, you're going to get something from him. Like, uh, and I appreciate though, that Aronofsky seems to really take his time and figure out exactly what he's trying to make. And then he makes it. Um, but I'm worried he's going to get, you know, another 20, 30 years down the line and look back and say, man, I wish I'd made more stuff. <laughs> and I think, <laughs> I think that's yeah. where he's going. You know, I think he's going to get to that point of, I wish I'd made more stuff. Um, and he just, I think he, I think he has just so much to say, um, and so many ideas that I just, I wish every, I wish it was more Woody Allen, um, and his mm. ability to be prolific. Um, and Woody Allen was more, uh, Aronofsky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Nice. Adore it. Um, yeah. What do you, uh, what are you going to recommend this week? Okay. This is weird. Maybe. A little bit, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to recommend the new Matilda. That is weird. It's really weird, but watched it last night. And uh, especially after watching The Fountain, which is strange. But just from the point of view of of having to have a vision. Right. It, like it's it's if you want, I don't know. Have you seen it? No. OK. All right. Well, it's a musical, which is weird that I'm but it's all it's almost all kids and these kids are freaking amazing i mean 
Well, for for one, for one, the ADR is fantastic. In fact, I would argue that a lot of times they're actually singing. I don't know. I haven't reviewed it. I haven't like gone and looked, but a lot of times they're probably actually singing. If not, whoever did the ADR is top, like the best I've ever seen. Uh, so good. So good. But the dancing, these kids dance better than 95% of adults on screens that I've ever seen. They are fantastic. And I, I, the other night we were looking for something to watch with the kids and I was like, oh, there's the new Matilda. Cause I've seen the Rob Zombie mashup of, have you, I don't know if you've seen it, but no. there's like a meme of like uh, uh, Dragula uh, being played while these kids are dancing. And it caught my eye because the dancing is incredible, but it goes, I forgot how much I love that song. And it goes really well with, <laughs> with the song. They just put Dragula on top of these kids dancing and it like fits. And it, I thought it was just hilarious in, in a good way. It was like, oh my gosh, I want to watch that. So anyway, the writing is great. The dancing is fantastic. The directing is amazing. It's a lot of like, it's really weird and it's, ki- it's for kids, right? It's for kids. But just the little girl who plays Matilda is amazing too. And I saw a video of her actually getting the role. Like she got the call from the director. Oh, wow. Which I don't know if you've ever seen someone get a role before. No. But the reaction, like, you know, it's, it's, it was, it's similar. I mean, it's not in the same scale, but like, if you ever watch those videos of like soldiers coming home. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just like that kind of like life changing kind of moment to capture on, on film and watch is viscerally reactive, you know? If you ever need a good cry, I hear that going on YouTube and Googling, um, hearing aid for the first time. Oh, yeah. Watching kids oh, yeah. hear for the first time is like uh, waterworks, apparently. Oh, yeah. What's I, another I good refuse. One? I'm like, I will just have a breakdown. I can't. <laughs> I can't. I can't <laughs> handle it. Anyway, yeah. So I'll stop talking. Uh, Matilda. Nice. Uh, it's on streaming on Netflix. Okay. I'll check that out. I like a good dancing, even if uh, I mute it while while they dance. Um, yeah, you don't you don't you don't have to watch the whole thing, but some of the scene dancing scenes are just amazing. That's cool. The kids, you know, dude. After last week, I literally watched uh, Cyrano like another four times. <laughs> what really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, then this uh, moves even faster. And also, it's really cool because she in it, she's like telling a story that she's making up to a woman throughout the whole movie. She's making up the story and tells her little bits of it. So like when you were telling about you telling stories, I was like, Oh my gosh, this goes so well with Matilda, (laughs) you know? And anyway, nice. I'm going to recommend, this is a, another weird recommendation. I'm going to recommend a dude. (laughs) His name is Aubrey de Grey. He's uh, I, I never know how to pronounce it. Gerontologist or gerontologist. Um, the study of aging. Um, and I came across him in 2007. Um, it was a, a an art, article, gosh, uh, I think it was for the guardian and it was not long after watching the fountain. And this is the tie in because at the end of the film, what does he say? Like, we need to find a solution to stop aging. That's the new goal. That's what we're here to do. Um, stop aging, stop dying. And that's Aubrey de Grey. And in 2007, he was kind of viewed as a lunatic um, because everyone was like, that was literally what he said is aging is a disease. It's like any other disease, uh, except it kills everyone. 
Um, and I think we can figure out a way to slow it down, maybe stop it. Like let's figure out how to solve aging. Um, and reading this article was one of those like mind bending moments. Um, and I remember actually at the time I sent that article to Byron and Byron, I think replied like, yeah, I never heard of this guy. I'm like, okay. Uh, fast forward like five years later and you know, everyone is talking about, you know, aging as a disease and you know, can we, how can we solve it? And even Byron himself, uh, is like thinking about the technical problem of aging and of disease itself and how in a matter of time, matter of years, like we're going to have a solution to anything that's a technical problem. We're going to have a solution to it. Um, and, and what is aging if not a technical problem? And so Aubrey de Grey is just really fascinating because he, he's a visionary. I think, um, I haven't kept, you know, close tabs with him. every, I feel like every six to 12 months, I kind of check in on him. Like, Hey, what's this guy up to? Um, there was a documentary that came out about him and some other people like him called the immortalist wasn't a very good documentary. It just was more about his life and instead of his research. And I was like, no, I signed up to hear more about the whole aging thing. Um, and so I just recommend kind of Googling this guy, reading his articles, listening to his speeches, hearing how, what he has to say, uh, because I think cancer is, you know, the, the ultimate problem for humanity. Uh, I think the, the, the old adage has been along the lines of, um, the goal is to live long enough to let cancer kill you. Like eventually cancer gets us all. Um, and, and particularly if you can solve aging, then you can solve cancer. Then you can solve every other disease, dementia, Alzheimer's, what have you. Uh, and so I just really respect, uh, uh the goal of maybe we can find a solution. Um, and maybe it's not as far away as we think. Maybe, uh, you and I will, will live to be, you know, 300, um, it's not out of the question if we can just hold on long enough. Um, yeah. So I'll put some links. I'll find a couple of, uh, my favorite links. If I can find that original story, I'll, I'll link that as well. And I'll put that in show notes. Um, and you know, get encouraged, uh, uh, read until your heart's content. And it looks like we have a film for next week. Nice. <laughs> I was hoping you would pick that one. I, uh, th- that is not the one I thought you would pick, though, to, to be completely honest. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. So I'm excited. Stay tuned for next week. We take a look at one of uh, Denny Villeneuve's uh, early films called Enemy. Yeah. Very exciting. Which is yeah. uh, the film that he made right, like, right before he made Prisoners. Um, he made oh, enemy. it was one of this little like asides, like, Hey, let's take a month and go make this movie. Uh, so yeah. Amazing. We're, we're going to take a Jake look Gyllenhaal, at it. He's able to do that. I don't know. He just makes films in a month. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> crazy. Right. He's done that multiple times. <laughs> oh, so we'll find out how they made it. Uh, and we'll, we'll look at all the things. This has been one of those scary movies for me. Like I just, I don't get it. And I love it. I've watched it probably five times and I keep trying to get it. And so, Maybe this will be the time where I, I the, the laser beams come on and uh, we, we figure it out, but probably not. Let, uh, well, let's, let's talk about it. Who knows? Yeah. And so stay tuned for that. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget, subscribe, drop us a review, leave us a note. If there's something you want us to talk about, happy to do so. Um, yeah. Uh, if you want to leave a note on this episode and how it impacted you, things that made you think about, uh, you can do that at thepestlepodcast.com slash the fountain. And our quote of the day today is from Joseph Campbell. We must be willing to let go of the life we planned so as to have the life that is waiting for us. That's amazing.
it goes back to the the adage what is it a man actually has two lives and the second one starts when he realizes he only has one wow never heard that it's it's um, um it's, <laughs> that's what that reminded me of right like that's Ooh. and it's so hard because you know we are our experiences we are mm-hmm. our our memories and and we hold on to those like like they they define us and in some ways they do right so how do you hold on to the <laughs> oh my gosh i had whatever i'll tell you after the episode i'll tell you this joke that i heard this guy tell that that actually like reminded me of this but how do we know what to hold on to and what not to you know hmm. sometimes it feels good to hold on to painful things yeah right um and sometimes it's important to sometimes it's important to let them go but it's kind of like a hard decision right amazing quote yeah amazing quote. i love it i I, you know, Joseph Campbell wrote Hero of a Thousand Faces uh, or With a Thousand Faces, and he has this whole mythological approach to analyzing stories, old stories. Um, and, you know, his work was a founding principle on, you know, for Star Wars, George Lucas. Um, and yeah, I, I love the, all the mythology of the film. I love, like we talked about, the blending of mythologies uh, and, and kind of creating one on on his own, right? Because at no point were is Christian and Mayan mythology talking about building a spaceship and going to Shibalba that I'm that I'm aware of anyway. Um, and I love that he kind of created his own circular mythology in the, in the process of analyzing some of these other stories. Uh, and yeah, I just was curious what he had to say about it. And man, I think that's where this movie ends. Is you know thomas or whoever tom uh letting go of what he was trying to hold on so dearly to um and and creating something new out of that uh which of course is what uh, isabel was was saying izzy was saying you know death as an act of creation well he let his dreams die and created something new out of that and that's really cool yeah and even uh man they tie that in so well in so many facets i mean he failed or he was failing at at curing cancer but he might have cured aging (laughs) but he didn't care about that because he just wanted to cure her like anyway unbelievable great quote man great quote very cool well thank you guys so much for joining us i I, it's been 227 episodes and finally we did the fountain and i'm so (laughs) glad that we did it's absolutely one of my favorites and hopefully one of yours too if not tell us in the comments why we'd love to hear uh and please recommend us to your friends share us and and comment and all that good stuff subscribe review it all helps uh and we appreciate all of it and if there's a film that you'd like to hear us do uh we'd love to digest that too and see what comes out until next time i'm todd i'm wes Go watch some movies.